Hello, my name is Art Babiance, and this is Walk Left the Podcast. And I'm Marty Janorek. Thanks for joining us. So, Art, I am excited to talk about your upcoming production. Now, it's interesting because the way it's written, it's the ellipsis musician. Yes. So when you say it to people, do you generally leave that pause? Yes, absolutely. I take a pause for a couple of minutes. People, <laughs> people, people get very confused. Yes. What's the name of your show? The, <laughs> the <laughs> Musician. Exactly. Well, it's actually The Ellipsis Musician and Etude. And it's actually the correct title of the original novella it's based on. The novella is called The Blind Musician an etude, because it's a study of blindness in a way. Uh, so we, like, it's a, it's a marketing thing to remove the adjective to confuse the audience because we don't want to give everything away right away. So obviously I, I just did, so it's too late. But it, it, it creates this suspense that, you know, the musician, it's not like the movie, the pianist or something. There is something that's, that's going to be unusual. There is a sense of suspense. And as you're saying, this is based on a novella. So I guess before we get into the production itself, tell me a bit about Toronto Laboratory Theatre and, and how that's come about. Sure. So Toronto Laboratory Theatre is a, is a new company. We started about two years ago and we all met at the University of Toronto. And the interesting thing was we were all very dissatisfied with the Toronto theatre in general. We, we had seen a lot of wonderful productions, but we had also seen a lot of questionable stuff. And because we've, like all our members, have experienced other countries and theatres in other countries, namely Germany, Russia, Britain, and uh, New York. And we were all very excited about theater in those places. So we really wanted to kind of push Toronto theater to a slightly different level. And uh, we started creating shows that uh, were inspired by the theater we, we saw in Berlin or in Moscow or in London or in New York or in Paris. And um, the idea is to create anything like we don't have like a mandate in terms of uh, we only do tragedies or comedies as long as you can combine some sort of theater research and theater production and bring community to the theater then you can you can create theater at the toronto laboratory theater and we do various projects we don't do production only we also do like a a theater slash esl course for non-native english speakers in toronto which is very popular it's called embodied english and we're developing another show right now which which is going to be a multilingual production uh, and the more implausible your idea might be the more interested we are in that idea so that's how Toronto Laboratory Theater works. Awesome. All right. So let's get let's get back to the the ellipsis production yes. then. Uh I'm out of out of the the company then. You I'm you're the primary driving force of this year directing it. Yes. Uh and the I guess the adaptation of the original novella. Can you tell me a bit about that process? Sure. So the original novella does speak about a blind person. It's about a boy who was born in Western Ukraine. Um, it's in the 19th century, and he grows up to become a very famous musician in Ukraine. Uh, it's all made up. It's not a true story. I know we are obsessed with like 
true stories based on reality. This right. is not based on reality. It's pure imagination. And this is something that attracted me when I, I read the, the novella. And it tries to combine a sense of realism with a sense of romanticism, as they were trying to do in the 19th century a lot. But the beauty of the novella is that it describes the experiences of a blind person growing up and struggling with things, but not because of only of, of his blindness, but also because we all tend to struggle with very large, difficult questions, and we're all in the dark. It's not about a blind person, technically. It's about anybody. And it's abs it's beautifully written. It's uh, The translation is not as good as the original, but it's it's also very nice. Uh, there are beautiful descriptions of music, nature. It's very poetic. And yet it's also very realistic. There's like a sense of like class struggle, things like that in the novel. So my challenge was when I started working on it, I had no idea how to stage it. I knew that I can't stage it in a traditional way, characters talking to each other, you know, traditional blocking. I knew I needed some sort of a conceptual staging. And what we came up with was um, very narrow lighting, uh, lighting beams, and the audience can only see parts of the actor's bodies. For example, only hands or only feet or only faces, but not ne almost never the full body of the actors. Uh, and the idea is to partially blind the audience to let them sort of experience this different way of knowing the world. So you go to the theater not only to learn a story, but also to experience the world differently. And that's how it worked out. We started with flashlights in a dark room. It was very scary and weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting because... You know, when you think about theater, or at least when I think about theater, the audience so often you are, for instance, you'll, you know, give them the three walls and then that fourth wall is where they look in. And obviously, you know, not talking about, you know, Ibsen-esque sets or anything, yeah. but there's something intriguing about your limiting that spectrum yeah. so much for the audience and so, you know, in that in that traditional sense of the action in old movies happening through silhouette, yeah. you're really leaving even more to the imagination Absolutely. of an audience. Yeah. The next step then, I, I understand there was a, yeah. a production that happened at the U of T. We did a like a workshop production because, you know, when you work within a new language, you create a new language in the first place, and then you don't know how that language works because you need to explore it. So that takes an enormous amount of time. So two years ago, with the help of the Center for Drama, Theater, and Performance Studies of the University of Toronto, we created a, a workshop production where we tried to employ that narrow beam lighting, live music, and spoken word all together in the production. And there were multiple discoveries. We interviewed our audiences, of course. We interviewed our actors in terms of how it feels uh, when you have to perform with one finger or with one hand or with one foot or with two feet and that was fascinating i actually had a lot of data to go through to kind of understand how that language new theatrical language is not entirely new to be honest it's very similar to some experiments that early modernists were trying to do in the theater there were there was a lot of experimentation with lighting so it's not entirely new but it was really new for us and i certainly haven't seen anything like that uh, in toronto and so we discovered, uh, you know, that gestures, whether it's feet or hands, they are really interesting when they do not complement the words, the, your lines, but when they actually contradict 
or when they're juxtaposed to your lines, mm-hmm. when they add something to to your lines. But that was possible because we had a production. We learned from the language what it allows and what it doesn't allow us to do. So now the the new version, which is much better, and I think it's much more beautiful as well, we employed those techniques that we discovered, and I think it's going to be a, a very different and a much stronger experience for the audience and for the actors. Going into it, are there things that you want an audience to be aware of or to be, what should an audience expect or prepare for? Oh, God, that's such a difficult question because I don't want them to expect anything. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I can tell you like a funny story. Uh, during the workshop production, I invited one of my um, professors who is a theater scholar and, and she goes to the theater a lot. And she brought her son who was four years old at that point. And he goes to the theater a lot as well, so because his mother does, so he has no choice. <laughs> he has to. And so uh, before the show started, she was instructing her son in terms of like how you behave in the theater. You have to look forward at the stage. Please be prepared like to be quiet for the next 70 minutes or something. So her son is all prepared and, and he's like focused on the stage and the stage is sort of dark. And then the lights go down in the house and all of a sudden he hears the voices behind him. That's how they, <laughs> <laughs> so that ruined the whole like idea of you know, the instruction. And But he was entirely engaged for 70 minutes despite all the kind of scary nature of the beginning of the show. He was completely into that. So yeah, the audience can expect the unexpected. That's the cool part. So, okay, so you started with this source material. You've made it something more universal. Does the narrative follow sort of a, a more of a linear path or is it in general as an etude, is it more of a sort of an exploration? How yeah. Um, that's a that's a very difficult question to. I only ask difficult ask. questions. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Oh my god, it's very tough because there are actually three different narratives happening. So okay. there is the actual narrative, which is the story of the blind boy, and it 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 is developing in you know the way it, it develops in the actual novella. It's more condensed for sure because of theater. We don't have like six hours to show you. It's we're we're not Peter Jackson and we we're not doing <laughs> The Hobbit. We can't do three movies nine hours long, so it's not possible. I apologize to anybody who loves his work. So. <laughs> <laughs> but we have like sixty minutes, so we have to condense a one hundred and fifty page novella. That's a lot of uh, text. But there are other two narratives. The second narrative is the lighting narrative. The audience comes into the auditorium and then they are subjected to this darkness and for a very long time they don't get to see the actors full bodies they hear a lot of voices happening and that narrative has to develop it's a theatrical narrative of lighting which develops into something at the end and i can't tell you what it is but it's a different narrative that should work with the actual novella and the third narrative is the musical narrative because there's live music. I play piano and uh, the music is sort of another character or n- another narrative in the story. It guides the narration. It, it is sometimes juxtaposed to it, but it also has its own path of development. It's it's not separate from the rest of the show. It's not just the background. It's another guiding source for us. And that's how it works. 
now so the music was this composed specifically for the production or what is the what are the origins of the the music no we <laughs> i wish uh <laughs> no the music was we used very famous uh classical pieces we used beethoven's uh pathetique we use mozart a little bit of chopin but Overall, I change it so that it would have its own language and it would fit the novella and the lighting because it's really, once you see the show, you will see that it's, it's all about these, this interaction between all those narratives in the show, which is extremely difficult to do. None of them is secondary. They're all primary narratives. You, you made a point at the beginning there talking about the ellipsis and, and not necessarily wanting to identify that as the blind musician yeah. but at the same time it is the source material yes, it's true. um i mean it was interesting as well on, the, on your website you talk about um admission for people with uh, visual impairment yeah. and and bringing them to the theater and to this production in particular you care to talk a bit about that i think it's a much larger issue for toronto theater it's not just people with uh, visual impairment that don't get to see theater a lot in toronto it's also all kinds of people. I, I, I feel that Toronto theater often caters to a very specific crowd, which is often, I'm going to be blunt here, white Anglophone, you know, middle class or upper middle class. And I think it has to change. I think one of our kind of missions is to bring more people to the, to the theater, partly because 50% of the population of this city isn't really white Anglophone and people speak hundreds of languages. It's wonderful. But when you go to the theater, and actually there's a, there's a wonderful play by uh, my friend Guillermo Verdecchia called Fronteras Americanas, which is a classic Canadian play where he asks the, you know, the, the stage manager to turn on the house lights. And he says, well, look around. And people look at each other and it's wide Anglophone. <laughs> like he's like, this is Toronto theater. So one of the ideas is to bring people, to bring to the theater people who actually don't go to the theater a lot. So for us, it's it's interesting. We're trying to uh, work with the people with impaired vision to come and experience the show because our show can be perceived as a radio play. And the person who gave us this idea is a musician, a friend of mine who plays with the Toronto Symphony. He came to the workshop production, and I obviously talked to him after, and I asked him, how did you find the music? Because he's a musician, he's a violinist. And he said, you know what? I loved the music in the show, and actually there were parts in the show where I would close my eyes and I would just experience the soundscape of the show. And he said it didn't make it boring, it actually made it very, very interesting to just close your eyes and have a completely different experience of the show. And he could still follow the plot. So that gave us this idea that people who can't see, they can experience the show in a different way that other people can't. So probably much deeper than others. As the director of this, tell me about your sort of directorial process and, and working with these actors, I guess, especially with the information that was collected through that first workshop production. Yeah, it was very hard. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I've done a lot of productions, but they, most of them have been more traditional. So after the, the fourth wall, I've done musical theater. I've done straight drama. I've done avant-garde productions as well. Um, this is different because, as I said, it's a it's a new language, and actors are not trained to perform in that language. So it was really difficult to find the right actors for that because they need to be very brave, very courageous. And to experience that, you can just try and imagine that only your right foot 
can perform for the next half an hour. Good luck. It's, it's extremely difficult to direct your acting energy there to your right foot. And it has to be interesting. If it's a boring performance, nobody's going to watch it. So connecting the, the words and the voice and with the music and with, you know, a part of the body is extremely difficult because there's also this idea that once you start performing, you, you, you want to make it very realistic, but you can't go realistic. Nothing is realistic on stage. We, we pretend it's realistic, but it's very, very constructive. However, if you, if you go too far, if it's completely unrealistic, it becomes jarring and difficult. So finding that middle ground between it is realistic enough, but it's also completely unrealistic if you're performing through your right hand or left hand or right foot or left foot, that was extremely hard for me as a director. So what we did, we had a very extensive training session for our actors. We invited an amazing movement instructor uh, from, he's originally from Russia and he worked with Soviet stars uh, in the 60s and in the 70s. And then he immigrated to Canada and he was producing theater in Montreal for 20 years. And then he moved to Toronto. So he's in Toronto now working as a superintendent in some building, which is <laughs> just delightful. Uh. But he's the best movement coach I've ever met in my life. So he definitely showed my actors how to use their bodies differently. That was a challenge. The other thing was not to get stuck in the narrative. The narrative is very powerful, but there is also music in the show. So teaching the actors how to listen to the music and how to talk to the music and how to allow the musician, myself, to talk to them at the same time. That interaction, which has to be open throughout the whole show, is extremely difficult to achieve. So I, I could only hire those actors who had a very good mus musical ear. That took a, a, long, a long time as well. But once it starts working together, it's fascinating. It's really wonderful. Because you're dealing with such narrow lighting, is that incorporated into the rehearsal process at all? Yeah. Whoever is observing the rehearsal, whether it's me or my dramaturge or my assistant director, they have to get used to the fact that they cannot see what they see, they can see. The whole point is to kind of, in your imagination, cut the rest of the actor's body and just focus on the hands, which is extremely difficult because in North America and in many other cultures, we're much more used to looking at, at like I'm looking at you right now, right? <laughs> uh, nobody can see it. But uh, so <laughs> the idea is, is we, we have to have this eye contact when we're talking. So as a director, when you're watching your actors perform, you naturally, you're drawn to their faces. But you have to bear in mind that you will not see those faces. So we can't always rehearse with lights. So whenever we have an opportunity to use like flashlights, we try to have one stage manager directing one light you know, on the hands or on the feet and the other stage manager on the other side directing the light to, on the hands. But when we have full lighting, we have to use our imagination and just cut the rest of the body. It's very, very difficult. It's really, it's a jarring experience. But you learn. It's a, it takes time. As a director, you also learn how to watch your actors differently. It's another skill that you add to your resume. Yes. No, no, for sure. <laughs> Which you will never use, probably. <laughs> and also, what the other thing I was going to say is that the script itself, unlike in more conventional theater, and again, I'm, there's nothing wrong with more con conventional theater. I've done a lot of it, and it's fine. Where we usually start with a play. Here, the script is still in development. It's scary. The show is like opening in, in a couple of weeks, but it's <laughs> sort of in development. Not that we have a script. 
obviously. It took us three years to put it together. But we always keep it open because a new way to light something, a new way to add music, guides the literary narrative as well. So the script can change at any point. Even maybe after the first preview, we might go, well, scene six is going to be completely different. And I think it's important to stay open and not to see the script as the ultimate source. It isn't. It's it's another creation based on our skills and imagination, but it's not where we started. At the beginning, there was no script. There were flashlights in a dark room and two actors. The Musician, January 17th uh, to the 26th at Dance Makers Theatre with previews on the 11th. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you have an upcoming Toronto-based performing arts project or production, I want to talk to you about it. Visit walkleft.ca.